Hello, and welcome to this month's Addiction Audio. My name's Susie Gage, and I'm the social media editor for the journal. This is an easy one for me this month, as I hand the reins over to Editor-in-Chief Robert West and Regional Editor for the Americas, Keith Humphreys. The two of them have recorded a conversation detailing the process a paper will go through when it's submitted to the journal. Who will see it? Who will make what decisions about it? And how long it'll all take? I think it's a fascinating insight into how the journal operates, and it's really useful for people publishing in addiction itself, but also to anyone interested in how these decisions get made more generally. So, enjoy. Maybe we'll start with, how, let's think, how many papers do we get a year? Unsolicited manuscripts, we get about a thousand submitted, but we also handle quite a number of commissioned pieces, which also, obviously, undergo review. So that means... As a journal, we're probably like four four papers a day or something like that. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, each year. And of unsolicited material, we probably accept one in six. Does that seem about uh, right? sounds about right? Yeah. Uh, if that translates to about fifteen percent, fifteen or sixteen yeah. percent. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you do as editor in chief? When do you touch papers? I touch them very rarely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we have a very distributed. Uh, system of editorial decision making and review in the journal which is a little unlike other journals that I'm familiar with when a paper comes in the first thing well the first thing to say is that it goes to one of the three regional offices so if it's from Australasia it'll go to that office in Sydney if it's from the Americas it goes to you in Stanford and in the UK or the rest of the world other all the other regions it goes to the London office so once it goes to the office, it goes. To, it's seen first by the regional editor, mm-hmm. uh, and the regional editor may well uh, say, "Well, actually, I don't think this is for us." Yeah. Um, I mean, tell so me maybe, about maybe your should, process. Maybe I should tell your... people a little about yeah, that. Yeah. So the re- the America's office is run by me and then Christine Timko, who's my colleague, and we, you know, we generally read don't read the whole paper. I usually read the abstract and then some any parts of it that I need to to understand what exactly the author has done and then decide is this good enough that it can go to a senior editor and when things don't go to a senior editor the typical reasons are it has a very fundamental methodological flaw the most common one is trying to make longitudinal and causal inferences from a cross-sectional descriptive data set mm-hmm. it happens all the time and there's just no way to make that right. Um, so that those get rejected. Sometimes it's a paper that it's a finding that is, I mean, the method's incredible, but the finding doesn't seem super important. It's been found lots and lots of times, and maybe they're finding it now in a small population or, or some small bit. And that's where I might say, you know, this is not going to command, I don't think, wide interest for us, but I think this will find a home in the literature. You know, it's a, I'm not saying it's a bad paper, so, so you might try it somewhere else. And then the last thing is because we're international is a paper that's just too parochial. So it's all around a new policy in a city in Connecticut. And, and if you understand Connecticut and U.S. city politics, it's fascinating. But then I have to think, how does somebody in France or Turkey or South Africa or India feel about that? Mm-hmm. Probably not so interesting. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad paper. I'm just saying mm-hmm. you, know, you should probably place this in a... Mm. U.S. journal, mm. just as I'm sure times in the London office, people are advised this is very, very, very particular to this country. You know, why don't you try a, a journal? Yeah, that's. Like that? I think that's absolutely right. One of the interesting things in relation to that, of course, is that human behaviour varies across cultures and within cultures 
concerned across countries and across the globe. And one of the things that I think we have not done so well over the decades is to adequately represent the global population. Mm -hmm. And you know, since we're interested in human behaviour, not the behaviour of people in the United States or the UK or Australia, then I think there is merit, definite merit, in, uh, in studies that's, that look at these other populations. I say other populations, they are actually most of the world. Yeah, less researched <laughs> populations. Less researched populations, that's yeah. a much better uh, term. And they could be confirmatory. They could say all this stuff that you think is true or you found is true in the United States is also true in India, South India, Indonesia, China, wherever it might be. That's useful. Or it may say that it's not. It may mm. say that, that you know, this only really applies in your particular culture. So I, I think it'd be very important for potential contributors to, say, to understand that we are interested in understudied or less researched populations. Absolutely, yeah. And there's a lot of learning about addiction that can come only from those kinds of comparisons outside wealthy mm. countries and, and, and cross-cultural comparisons, whether it's actually empirical or just looking at the literature in a whole, and that's really valuable. And I think the key, sometimes where authors go wrong when they're presenting their research in these areas is that they don't set it in the context of the literature that exists. Essentially, it, they're just saying, well, this is a Me Too study just done in this particular area and it's not clear what that's adding you know yeah. what it is you know, we don't know enough or we're not told enough about what it is about their population that would lead us to think that there might be something different that's mm -hmm. uh, going on there so that's important and so you might decide okay this isn't for us and then write back to the authors but uh, you might also take advice on it right yeah. so that, that's good so we have about 30 or so senior editors and an, a not unusual outcome for me is I'll read something I think this method seems solid to me this is about a question say in tobacco I'm not a tobacco researcher and I'm not sure if it's a novel and interesting to people in that field. And so not being sure, I'm going to ask a senior editor who's deeply expert and say, we have this paper, is it of interest that this relates to that under these conditions or not? And their advice would then inform what I did. If they say, oh, wow, that, that's pretty exciting, or even that might be exciting, then I usually err on the side of, okay, this, we're going to send this on to the next level. But sometimes they'll say, oh, God, you know, let's study 200 of that, and or, 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 oh, that method has been, you know, discredited, and then I'll have to just reject it. Sometimes as well, when I send, when, when things go from a regional editor to a senior editor, there is some context and advice the regional editor will apply. Uh, you know, so, so I might say, this paper is in your area, which you understand better than me. Reading it as someone outside, I was excited by this and concerned by that but I'm going to leave this decision in your hands because you're an expert in this field, in subfield, and I'm not. So the paper gets through the initial process, right. and the next step is... The senior editor makes yeah. a decision, yeah. So now the senior editor has to make this essentially a decision parallel to the regional editor, is do uh, I feel that this is potentially strong enough to send it off to the review process. At the same time, considerations go in. Uh, is the you know fundamental flaws and method that maybe the regional editor didn't pick up a substantive issue that the senior editor knows uh, that the regional editor didn't like, oh, you know, that, that form of fMRI, when analyzed that way, is prone to uh, many false positives, so that's going to be a problem, whatever. Um, but they make that judgment, and if they think it's strong enough, they assign an assistant editor. Now called associate, associate editor. Editors, yes. Yeah. Or they may say, this is not for us, and explain why, and then that will go back to the author. Uh, the senior editor writes that letter, and regional editors read it. 
and you know, and say thanks for thinking of us. And we did make it this far. We have some advice. We hope is helpful and helpful to you. But this is uh, um, not one we're going to do out to the reviewers. Now you may feel, if an author, why why not just send everything out? And the answer goes back to this thing: if you're having four papers a day every day, you would burn out your reviewing pool and your editing pool. If you think every single piece needs to be touched by five or six people, that's just a staggering amount of work. And so the goal is to use people's time wisely. A paper can have problems and, and go out, but the kinds of things that they are, they have a shot of making it in. The other upside from an author is if you're really not going to have much of a shot to get in, do you want to go through an extensive review process, do a lot of work, and then six months later have that confirmed? Or are you are you not better off in a way to know, you know, this is just not, not going to work in addiction, but there's plenty of efficiency, there's other places to go. Mm -hmm. And so most authors are actually glad that there is the early decision as available to them. Yeah, I mean, as an author, I certainly relish it, but sometimes... You know the decision can be lightning fast. You just press send on your on your on your manuscript, and then milliseconds later, the decision comes back that this isn't for us. With some journals, we like to give a little bit more consideration. But uh, but it is from an author's point of view helpful because you know you really don't want delays in getting the, your paper into the uh, uh, literature. So it goes to the associate editor. The associate editor then is in addiction. They're the people who identify reviewers. And we usually go out to three reviewers and then the associate editor will collate the reviews and they will make, make a recommendation. So what comes back to the editorial office is the reviews from the, uh, from the reviewers plus usually some synthesis and a recommendation from the associate editor. But the associate editor... I hope everyone's paying attention here and <laughs> keeping up with this. The associate editor is not a decision-making editor. They make a recommendation. That goes back to the senior editor, who's the decision-making editor. So although the regional editor may has sort of started the whole ball rolling, the regional editor is not usually the person who mm. makes the decision and certainly not the editor-in-chief. It is the senior editor, and we, we've had that policy for many years because essentially we want to devolve that decision making because the senior editors are senior they, they're knowledgeable about the field and they're in a position to say yes or no but ultimately the buck stops with them and it'll be the senior editor who sends out the letter however before that letter goes that initial letter there's another stage in the process which is the stats review not all papers get a stats review mm. but rele relevant ones do if your paper goes out to the stats reviewer it is because the assistant editor has thought that it's going to make it through the process they're going to make a positive mm. recommendation uh, so we don't send stuff out to the stats reviewer if it's likely to be rejected and then the stats reviewer comes up with a review which is intended to be around the uh, stats that were done how they're described that goes back for the decision mm. and then the decision is made but it's also reviewed by the regional editor, is that right? Right, yeah. right. and, and this, our senior editors are very accomplished scientists. So, at least for me, it's probably only once a year that I have a disagreement with a senior editor's decision. And, and it's oftentimes when they feel stuck themselves. It's like, and I'm really on the fence, and I ended up inviting a revision, or I ended up rejecting, but I'm not sure, and then I will intervene. But almost all the time, 99% of the time, mm. I look at it and I think that seems like a really wise decision to me. And so they, they really do, in, in, in an sort of operational sense, run addiction in terms of the experience, at least in terms of the experience of the author. Mm. So, so it's worth saying, too, that assistant editors, reviewers, sometimes disagree with each other pretty mm. profoundly. And that's uh, another reason why senior editors ends up being very important. 
Uh, sometimes because they, they know a substantive matter with more depth maybe than the people who looked at it, but also they know the journal. Mm. So they, they have, a I think, a sense over time of like what people in addiction, uh, who read addiction, find interesting, what they find compelling, what the review process can be like, because we, we also don't want to send someone down a rabbit hole of like three reviews ending in a rejection. Um, and that's another thing they, they bring to the process. So it's been quite an extensive process thus far with opportunities for the paper to fall out of the system in terms of uh, being sent back to authors and declined at a lot of points in that process. But now we've got to the point where the senior editor has written back to the authors and said, uh, we're interested in your manuscript. And have you ever had an occasion in which the paper has been accepted without from the, on the first occasion without further amendment? I, uh, yes. Well, I'd say not, not zero amendment, mm. but I've certainly seen a few times where everyone is wildly enthusiastic, and they do suggest some changes that are important, but none of them is major. Mm. And so it's appropriate to say to the author, well done, you're, you're in an elite group, and we're pretty much going to take this, but they just noticed you're missing this reference, mm. that table isn't clear, mm. and you need to strengthen this point, and you're mm. done. That does happen. Mm. But, but um, usually, despite the fact that we get good papers, I mean, it's mm. submitted, usually you know, two or three reviewers and assistant editor, senior editor look at a study, they're going to have more substantive, consequential mm. requests for revision. Yeah. And that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Because the kind of people, uh, and we are the, as authors, we have the same experience. I had, I think in my whole career, 40 odd years, I've had one paper accepted without any amendments at all. You know, mostly it'll be revision. I mean, sometimes they're not huge revisions, but mostly they are quite substantial revisions. Mm -hmm. And that's after I and my research team and a whole bunch of other people have already looked at this paper before we even submitted it. So there's something a little, it's, it's just a strange thing that experienced, highly expert authors, scientists and researchers can send stuff to a journal that then requires major revision, even if it's ultimately going to be accepted. Yeah, that's right. But anyway, we do, that's how it is. And maybe things can change. So then the author gets an opportunity to revise and resubmit which is the most common uh, positive decision and they re and they send it back uh, usually within a few three six, months or six so. weeks yeah. 12 weeks yeah right and when you do that one of the most important things to do as an author is to clearly explain why you did what you did so you're far more likely to get a good response to a revision if you write a clear letter back saying, point by point, reviewer one said this, we did that, reviewer two said this, that point we didn't agree with, so we didn't do anything, here's why we didn't do anything, that sort of thing. That's part of what you should provide as an author. Mm -hmm. And that, that will increase your chance of positive response and lessen the chance of confusion from the editor. Because you have to remember, from your point of view, this is the only paper you're thinking out about with addiction. But the editor, since they last looked at your paper, will have seen many more things come through, and there's a lot of retroactive interference. Mm. And so mm. it helps them sort of remember, oh, yes, this was a point, and that was a point. And that yeah, sort of definitely worth doing a point-by-point. Point. What we always do in my team is we, we just make a numbered list of all the points that were raised, even if they weren't in a numbered list when they came mm. back from the reviewers and the assistant editor, make a numbered list. And then underneath each of the points that the reviewers have made, we will make our response and tell the editor, if we've made a change in response to that point, where that change is, and we may even repeat it verbatim in the letter mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so that it's absolutely clear. Sometimes you can't do that if there's a lot of changes, but sometimes you just sort of point to the page number or something like that. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind that um, reviewers don't always get things right, and we recognise that. 
And so if, as an author, you feel that you would like to disagree with the reviewer's point, um, you're perfectly at liberty to do that and just explain why you disagree and why you're not going to make the change that's been requested. That does happen, and if you make a good case, that's perfectly fine. I mean, in your experience, Keith, do you find that mostly authors will, in the large majority of cases, make some kind of uh, uh, response or change to the manuscript with it? Yeah, most... Yeah, yes, definitely. It's unusual that an author will just say, no, that is really wrong-headed or really not what we want to do and we cannot accommodate this in every way. It does happen, and as you say... It's fine if there's a rationale. Mm. Um, it's also fine for the reviewer there to come back and say that rationale isn't strong enough. We really need you to, <laughs> yeah. you know, think about this point more thoroughly. Yeah. But usually people respond to some extent to every mm. single point. I, when doing it, I think it's worth bearing in mind that if the reviewer's got something wrong, it could well be because you haven't explained it well right. enough. And therefore, even if there is a mistake that's been made by the reviewer, it's worth thinking about whether you could amend the paper to make it clearer. Because if, if a a reviewer's making that mistake, there's a good chance that a reader would do the same thing. Right, right. So, often, yeah, for so example, the things my comp is a method was not described clearly enough, and the reviewer thinks they've identified a validity mm. hole, and it's not that you know, you, you've actually had that hole plugged as a, as a scientist, but you didn't make it clear how you did it. Mm. Um, sometimes, too, not making the motivation of the study clear enough. So, a reviewer is just saying, why, why did you not do X, Y, Z, and the answer is you had a clear idea in mind what the study was about, but you didn't lay it out in such a way that they would realize, oh, well, that's, that's re- that would really be a different investigation than what was planned. Yeah. So it goes, and when your revision goes back, it doesn't go to regional editor or chief editor. It goes, now, now you're in dialogue with your, your senior editor. So the senior editor will see it, and so will the assistant editor. And they may say, this is great and uh, we'd like to accept this paper for addiction. They don't necessarily send it back out again. If, if you, In their judgment, you've done an exceptionally good job of, of looking at it. Other times they'll send it out to uh, some reviewer. Maybe, you know, let's say a couple of reviewers had kind of minor critiques and those were addressed, but one raised some really serious issues. The editor might say, well, this is going to keep the two who basically liked it happy, but I really need to go back and see because these were some serious reservations made. And then that all that information is then used to do the same kind of decision again, hopefully to give you a clear answer as an author at that point, saying, you know, this is acceptable, or it's nearly acceptable if you just a little more spit and polish. Or, although it doesn't feel good to hear this, you know, this is the revision has made clear that we're, we're going to have to reject this paper. Because it never feels good. I've certainly had papers rejected, definitely including at addiction. But to know that something is not amendable is better than just keeping the cycle going, revision, revision, revision. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do ask for a second major revision. That is an area where, as a regional editor, I sometimes get involved with consultation because I'm trying to think about what's likely to be productive for this author and also what's likely to be productive for us if we're going to spend a lot of resources on it. But sometimes that second revision really makes the paper into a, a gem. It can be very productive, even though it is, it's more, it's more work for everybody mm. in those mm. cases. And it may or may not go to, back to the stats reviewer if the stats yeah. reviewer has identified something that they would like to see again to check. So it's a long process, uh, yeah. potentially. But not um, a slow one. But not right. a slow one, no. Yeah. And, what, what, are yeah. we, what are we at right now? Like fast we get people so usually, let's say it goes through the whole process, taking out the ones that are triaged out uh, yeah. earlier, but it goes through the whole process. You're looking at probably for the first revision, we would get a response back somewhere around sort of eight to ten weeks, 
or earlier. Most of the delay then comes in the, actually in the authors then making mm. the revisions, which is perfectly understandable. And then the second time round, it's usually a lot quicker. It's usually sort of about four weeks or less. It might be quicker than that. You're still talking about a few, you know, a few months between the initial submission and the final acceptance. But, but we haven't got to the final acceptance yet because right. there's another... This, this is where I come in. Right, right. So the, so the senior editor, let's just say, says, I think this is good enough. It goes to the regional editor. I have never... I think I've... I don't know how long I've been regional editor, five years. I have never said an acceptance, no, this should be rejected. Never, yeah. never done that. And then it goes to... Uh, Robert. And, yeah. Uh, what, what so what do I do? So I am particularly keen on abstracts because I think, obviously, they are the thing that people first come to when they read a study and they're very often the only thing that's read when you're doing screening for a meta-analysis mm. or, or a systematic review to find out what was, you know, what studies are going to be included in your review. So abstracts are tremendously important, but they're very, very hard to write. And part of the reason they're hard to write is the word limit, and part is because communicating a complex study in a relatively short, short space is, is difficult. But we're getting there. We're getting better. But anyway, so what happens is that I'm usually, I'm not going to be turning down a paper that's been through this process. And under our rules, I don't even think I'm entitled to, uh, and rightly so. So the abstract comes to me, and everyone else thinks it's okay. And actually, what happens then is that uh, Gene O'Reilly in the head office in London uh, will go through it looking at the format of the abstract and and whether it's communicating what it needs to and there are certain key things that we need that very often aren't done I mean it's extremely rare for an abstract to we just uh, see it in the office we think wow that's great that's fine much more common is that it needs some information added or things presented differently and I'm particularly focused on the abstract conclusions, which I want to be what, I, what I've, I've coined the term citable statement. And the reason for using that term is that the conclusions of the abstract should be written in such a way that you could just take them wholesale and shove them into the introduction of another paper. They're, in a sense, the DNA mm-hmm. of... Uh, transmission of information transmission within the scientific community if someone has to paraphrase what you said in your conclusion then to put it in an abstract to another paper there's scope for misunderstanding and for that to become replicated and replicated so we try and make it so that the conclusions are standalone statements if you just read that conclusion you would know something that you didn't otherwise know mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's key so they have to be really they have to be self-contained they have to be concise but and they have to be clear and that's, I think, mostly where I would, you know, having seen thousands and thousands of these uh, things, uh, hopefully make a contribution. And so sometimes authors w- may be surprised, but they will get a letter coming back saying, well, you know, the editor-in-chief has had a look at the abstract and is making these suggestions for, for revision. Once that is all done, we're done. Yes. The process has come to an end. Happy uh, champagne corks all round, and the paper will be published in an accepted article form within about 48 hours or so, and then online early within a few weeks as soon as the proofs have been done, and then it will go into an issue usually uh, within about six months. So, any authors out there that are listening, you hopefully get a sense that by the time an, a paper gets accepted by the journal, it's been seen by an awful lot of people. An yeah. awful lot of people have put a lot of time, effort and energy, usually unpaid, uh, into it because they want to try and do their best for the science. 
they're doing the best they can. We're all fallible. Mm-hmm. We, we, we make mistakes, we accept things we shouldn't, and we reject things we shouldn't, uh, but everyone's doing their best. And as a journal, we try to make sure that our, our family of editors, the mm-hmm. senior editors, the associate editors, uh, the regional editors, are all coming at this with the same kind of ethos and with the same kind of critical eye, not being overcritical, not being undercritical. And from your perspective, Keith, as regional editor for the Americas, how, what is your sense of the sort of consistency or otherwise that you get with this very distributed decision-making process? Yeah, so there's definitely, as you, as you said, Robert, like human fallibility. There's also um, different ideas in the field about uh, what are the central questions. Uh, there's disagreement, as we all know, about the power and, and weaknesses of various methods. Um, so it is, you know, certainly we've never done this study, but, it, uh, you know, my bet would be papers that we'd accepted if they came in as a twin and, and we were, and a totally different team handled them, the result could be different. There's no, no denying that could, that could be the case. But I'm pleased about the fact that, first off, I think the, journal, the papers do get in are very high quality, and also that a lot of papers that we don't accept but we give feedback on do appear in the literature and are good papers. So, you know, there is some benefit that gets, you know, to authors and more importantly to science uh, through that through that process, even when you know, maybe you feel as an author, boy, that, you know, addiction made the wrong call on this, but I hope even in that case you would still say, but, uh, you know, reviewer two gave me some really good ideas that strengthened my rationale, my method, my, my analysis, my explanation, and so on. Right. Well, thanks, Keith. And, Thank um, you. I, and I think that uh, hopefully those of you out there listening who are contributors to the journal will have a better understanding of how the work process goes. And if you're thinking of contributing to the journal, then we very much welcome your, your papers and um, good luck with your research. Amen. And there we go. Please join us next time for another episode of Addiction Audio. If there are any topics relevant to addiction, the journal or the concept that you'd like us to cover in future, please do get in touch on Twitter at AddictionJRNL, to me at Sousaphone, or send an email directly to the journal office. Thanks a lot. See you next time.